Thank you, Ian. You got the sandals on. I'm a bit jealous. I uh, I asked Chloe which shoes she wanted me to wear this morning, and uh, she told me these ones. I guess she thinks I look better and them more more professional than uh, than wearing my my flip flops, my rainbows. So, uh, you guys surviving the heat? Yeah. Who actually has AC in their house? So now we know who to go to after the service, right? We'll be visiting you guys. Yeah, I've got windows and I've got fans, uh, and we have the Bay Breeze, right? That's about all I have. Uh, I'm going to Arizona, actually, after this, uh, this afternoon. Uh, so speaking of heat, uh, that's where I grew up. So it, I, that's my terrain. I'm, I'm familiar with it. I actually checked the weather yesterday, and we were one degree uh, cooler than Phoenix, but we were right there. So, uh, yeah, we should be proud of ourselves. We're doing it. Um, guys, let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Um, we're going to read verses 37 to 42. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and um, we'll get one to you. But we've been in Luke's gospel now for, for a little bit and we are uh, going to trek along. Although today, um, we're going to kind of use this text uh, I guess you could say as a, as a launch pad into the broader subject that the text brings up. But let's read uh, in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. And let me pray, and we'll, we'll dive in after that. Verse 37, Jesus says this, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray, guys. God, we, um, we believe that the scriptures have been breathed out by you. We believe that they are inspired. We believe that they are sharper than a two-edged sword and able to get inside us and expose us and heal us at the same time. We believe that, God, your word reproves us, rebukes us, changes us, saves us, heals us, equips us for every good work. And I just read the other day in my devotions, 
Paul talking to Timothy, preach the word. So God, I pray as we attempt to do just that here, that you would meet us with power. You would meet us by your Holy Spirit. And you would show us just how true all that I just said is about your word. God, that we would be broken by it, that we would be rebuilt by it, that we would be encouraged and strengthened and, and even saved by it. As your heart opens up to us in your word. I ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay. We are going to continue now in our dealing with the subject of judgment. Uh, the subject that this text brings up, uh, namely judgment, but not God's judgment of us. It might be the first thing we think of when we hear that word, but rather our judgment of one another. How we kind of size one another up and, and, and how we look upon our um, neighbor and our brother and sister in Christ. I mentioned last week that Christ is not, in this text, categorically renouncing all forms of judgment. We might think that by verse 37, judge not. But by the time we get to verse 42, we realize he's still talking about judgment and and removing the speck, seeing and removing the speck in a brother's eye. But it's a different kind of judgment now. He's wanting to move us from verse 37 uh, kind of judgment that is uh, condemning, arrogant, destructive. And get us over to verse 42 kind of judgment that is humble, hopeful, restorative, reparative. The one in verse 37 looks down on the brother and delights in doing so. The one in verse 42 that Jesus is trying to get us to looks upon a brother and the speck or whatever it is in his eye with mercy, compassion, and delights to see them built back up. And uh, help them see clearer, removing the specks so that they, their life is better <laughs> when you're done with them. Not worse, they're not on the floor somewhere, depressed and ashamed. This is the essential trajectory that Jesus wants his disciples on. And therefore, it's the essential trajectory that I want us as a church to be on. Moving from verse 37 to verse 42. In our dealings with one another. Um, just to show you the seriousness of this uh, subject for a moment. It is um, my understanding that even for the people of God, even the saved, <laughs> even those who uh, owe their very lives to the cross of Christ, whereby we've been saved from judgment, shown mercy, even in those kinds of communities. There can still be this kind of undertow that pulls us from verse 42 kind of dealings with one another back to verse 37s and the condemnation and the criticism. Let me show you this in the New Testament because it, it should sober us. 
when we realize, man, that these guys, Paul, you know, James, John, whoever, they're, they're planting these churches, and then they write these epistles, and you can barely turn to an epistle that doesn't address this subject of judging one another harshly, critically, condemningly. It's like even amongst these people, saved by grace, here it is. Let me just show you this. Judgmentalism threatening to unravel the very fabric of these churches. Paul is writing to churches about it in Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? James is writing to the churches about it in James 4, 11, and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Who are you to judge your neighbor? John is writing to the churches about it. 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So it's not like, man, we come to the glory of the cross, we get transformed overnight, and we just, we just move straight from, we're just kind of like teleported from verse 37 to verse 42. We've arrived, no way. There's this undertow, and it's pulling at us, it's pulling at you. If it's pulling at the early church, you got to believe it's pulling at Nick Weber and, and those of us in this room. That's why I I, I didn't want to just move on from this text. As uncomfortable as it may be to talk about our tendency towards judging others. I, if the apostles are dealing with it seriously and intensely, I want to do so too. I want us to be a church that gets into that verse 42 kind of mindset. uh, Where we know how to lovingly, carefully, kindly, mercifully. Remove the speck from each other's eye. So I'm going to title the next two messages. um, Merciful judgment. A field guide. Subtitle. How to judge without being judgmental. Now I'm running with this idea of a field guide. um, Because let me explain why. If you're anything like me, here's how your Christian life works. Uh, you know, in the morning, you get your coffee, you got your Bible, you're reading about Jesus, you're reading what he has to say. His teachings make sense in the morning, uh, in your study or on your couch, as you're just kind of thinking about it, right? Oh, this is great, and your heart is warmed, and ooh, yeah, you know, don't judge, but go out and love people. But then here's what happens. You get out into your day and your life and everything just kind of gets chaotic, disordered. And now you don't know up from down. And what he said in the morning, it seems so clear. You don't know how to apply out here. Like, what does it actually mean when I get into the field? I need a guide. I need a field guide. So when I'm here, I kind of have a sense of what I'm doing. We talked about last time how deceptive in particular this judgmentalism can be. And that's why, man, I'll tell you, when I get out into my life, here's what happens. I find a way of justifying my judgmentalism, of rationalizing the way that I view another person or whatever it is. And then it's not until after the fact, later in the evening or perhaps the next morning while I'm sitting drinking my coffee on the couch, that I realize, man, I'm such a jerk. What was I thinking? 
I'm not, I didn't have the heart of God there at all. So I'm just trying to put something in our hands, a field guide, so to speak, that can help us as we're kind of living our life out there in reality. And we're dealing with what does this actually look like? So I want to double down and, 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 and get into what does this kind of for, verse 42 kind of judgment look like in the field of real life. Now, I'm calling um, this verse 42 kind of judgment we're aiming for merciful judgment. I'm calling it merciful judgment, and I'm aware of the irony in that, and I'm doing it on purpose. We typically think, um, if I'm not mistaken, that those two terms or ideas are opposed to one another. Mercy and judgment. Either you're being judgmental and you're judging others or you're being merciful and you're not bringing up anything. You're just overlooking and overlooking and kind and kind. You're merciful. But in the Bible... Both of these things are brought together. They are not opposed. They, they live, so to speak, under the same sun. Because we live in uh, this world presented to us by the Bible in which God himself comes in Jesus Christ, takes upon our judgments and gives to us his mercy. But what this means isn't that now God doesn't address things in us or talk to us about you know, ways that we're in sin or whatever it is. It just means now when we do bring up issues with one another or we do try to address the speck or whatever it is, we don't do so in a condemning judgmental way. We do so with hope. We do so with mercy because we know man, our God can get a hold of broken, sinful people, renew, restore, redeem them. So as we're talking about things, we just do it in a different way. There's even as we judge, there's a mercy to it. There's a mercy to it. I'm going to organize this field guide um, around four critical questions, really. Um, First, who should we judge? Who should we judge? Second, What should we judge? Third, why should we judge? And then fourth, how should we judge? First three, God willing, we're going to tackle today. Last four or the last, uh, the fourth one there, we're going to tackle, I think, uh, when I preach in two weeks from now. Um, And by how, what I essentially mean is, man, what are the qualities that mark this kind of judgment? What does it look like? So I'm kind of excited to get to that. But we will set the stage with these first three here. First question then, who should we mercifully judge? It um, cannot go without being said. I don't think Jesus would permit me to go without saying here that um, before judging anyone else or attempting to address anything in anyone else, whoever they may be. We are first to take pains and efforts and, uh, to judge ourselves. That is the essential burden of this whole text in Luke. That's why uh, in verse 42, Jesus comes out and says this first, take the log out of your own eye. Then 
you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. In other words, there is a sequence to this whole affair. And it doesn't begin with, you know, what my kids have always want to do, which is she. (laughs) Chloe did it. Bella did it. It doesn't begin out there. It begins in here. Wait, where? Where? What about me? What role did I play in this? How do I relate to what this person's struggling with? Do I struggle with the same things? Am I dealing with the same stuff? Can I relate? I think surely this is what Jesus is after in um, that text in John 8. Can you remember this? It's one of the most beautiful scenes in all the Bible. Unfortunately, it's debated manuscript-wise, whether it's... Uh, we won't get into that. But here, here's the most... Listen to this. These guys, scribes, Pharisees, catch this woman caught in adultery. They drag her out to Jesus. They got stones raised over her head, ready not for merciful judgment, but for just judgment. Right? And then Jesus looks at them and he says this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, the call is, brothers, before you ever judge this woman, judge yourselves. How are you doing in the whole sin department? Here's what should happen. and Actually, it does happen in this text, it seems. What should happen is, man, we look in, we go, no way. <gasps> look at me. What a sinner I am. We start to see our own stuff, our own need for the mercy of God and God's willingness to extend that mercy to us in Christ at the cross or for them at the sacrifices at the temple and they're laying hands. And what does that symbolize? But covering your sin, God's willingness to cover your sin. And so what started with stone raised overhead and they just dropped the stone. And we withdraw our condemnation because we realize, like we said last week, and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no hierarchy here. We're all in need of mercy. And what that means is, is we might still come and we probably should still come and talk to the woman caught in adultery. You're still going to address the speck in her eye. And the sin that's in her life that is killing her. But now you're doing it in such a different way, right? Not stone raised overhead. But you're doing it in the light of the cross. And listen, listen, daughter. Jesus doesn't condemn you and neither do I. And let's grow in grace together. I know what it's like to struggle with sin and be lured out after some of these things. He's ready to cover. He's ready to change. He's ready to help. Let's meet at the cross. You and me together. Those stones there. See how that changes the tenor and tone of that whole conversation. If we begin by mercifully judging ourselves. Seeing our our own uh, uh, sin. But in light of God's mercy at the cross. But now assuming we start here with ourselves. Who else are we then to mercifully judge? Everyone indiscriminately? No, actually. And this is why I bring this up in our field guide, so to speak. Who else are we then to mercifully judge? 
um, tucked within the statement we just read from Jesus back in verse 42, I think is actually a clue uh, to the answer to this very question. Let me read it for you again and emphasize what I think is the answer. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out of the speck or take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and he says, man, you're going to be taking the speck out of your brother's eye, meaning, I think, this is a family affair. This is for those who are within the household of God, those who take upon themselves the name of Christ, who would who would profess to follow him. It's for those on the inside of the family, not for those outside. There's a different standard, a different approach to people who are not Christians. And we actually judge them much, much, much less severely. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean. But this hint in verse 42 is made plain by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Um, in this uh, text here, there is this dude in the in the um, church there in Corinth that is, I guess, sleeping with his dad's wife. OK, maybe not his mom, maybe like his, his mother and his stepmom or whatever. Um, and the church is not dealing with it. In fact, they're kind of boasting in it, it seems. They're arrogant in it. Talking about the freedom of Christ that we have now in it. And Paul says, man, no. You got to judge such a brother. You got to address this sort of flagrant sin in his life. Let me show you what he says, because he goes on to clarify just who we judge and why. First Corinthians five, verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Here it is. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world, which ironically, some Christians have tried to do. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes a text from the Old Testament. Purge the evil person from among you. Anyone feel encouraged and just so full of grace right now? <laughs> no, it's not an easy subject. If we understand it properly, it's such an essential subject, though. But Paul is saying, man, it's the one inside the church that we are to, again, that's why I keep saying it, mercifully judge. He's saying that's where it that's where it begins. That's where we focus. Anyone who bears the name of brother ought to be our concern. Because the church, if we remember God's purpose in the church, is to be holy, set apart, city on a hill, like to the world. Altogether different from the world. 
And so we ought to be growing in Christ's likeness. We ought to be growing towards him and reflecting his image more and more. And so here's what happens. If someone is caught in serious trespass or error, and because we love them, because we love the Lord and his glory, which we'll get to, we want to address it. We need to address it to care for them, to care for the community we're a part of. Paul would say, man, if you don't address this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this sin is just going to spread. So within the community, it is addressed. But this is in contradistinction from the way we treat those outside the church. Paul says, man, I don't mean don't don't associate with the immoral, you know, and, and the idolatrous of this world. You would have to you, you wouldn't be eating with anybody ever. You'd be alone in your closet till Jesus comes. No, I think the example and we've looked at this in Luke's gospel for Jesus himself is man, go eat with the sinners. Go eat with them. Get as many meals with them as you can. Talk to them. Get to know them. Love them. Yeah, sure. You might. You might call them like Paul or, or, or Jesus or others will do to repent and, and, and believe the gospel and, and, and be saved from the coming judgment. But you don't. You don't judge them in the same way. We don't hold them to a standard they never ask to be held to in the first place. Here is, um, I think, one of the greatest tragedies that can happen um, for Christians. As we grow comfortable with the people of God, you know, this happened with me when I got saved. I was kind of pulled from the muck and the mire by Jesus. And so I still had friends in the muck and the mire. But as I grew comfortable with Jesus and the people of God and the household of God, I started to grow increasingly uncomfortable with those outside the church. I like didn't know how to respond and, and, and I would be like offended by the things they would say. And I need to bring this up. Did you hear? He just cursed or did you hear that? Oh, what are you doing? You know, on the internet with pornography. Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, we, and we, we, our, our ears are bleeding eating lunch with these people and we're judging them and arrogant over them how could they be so lost and stuck in these things we don't know how to relate to them anymore we want to tell them they offend us or that this behavior is wrong but you want to know what jesus and paul would call us to do here love them love them listen to them talk about all manners of depravity Listen to them talk about whatever it is that's on their heart, however clean or dirty, filthy, whatever. Just get to know them. Go underneath the secondary stuff like the behavior or the what's going on in their heart. How can I know them? How can I love them? How can I in that lead them to the cross, the Savior who died for them? So with regard to our field guide, the first question we got to deal with is, is this person even claiming to be a Christian? At that point, things actually fork off and we handle it in much different uh, ways. Okay, so who then should we mercifully judge first ourselves, second, our brothers and our sisters in Christ? Now, before I move um, to the next question, let me just get personal with you for one moment because I want our church to grow in this. I want to grow in this. I want this to be a part of our culture. 
If you are a brother or sister in Christ, here's my question. Are you open to this kind of merciful judgment coming to you from another? Are you open to someone bringing up uh, a speck or whatever it is in your eye? Or is it like hands off? Don't you dare. I'll judge myself. Thank you. I got that from Nick. I see that in the text. But don't you come to me. Do we respond like David in Psalm 141 verse 5? Listen to this. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Unless I, you get struck, you turn around and say, thank you, may I have another. I feel loved. You're doing it mercifully. You're trying to help me. I get that. But my sense is that for most of us, what we'd rather say in those moments is, let a righteous man strike me and I will turn and strike him back. Who does that jerk think he is talking to me like that? But if that is our attitude, if that is the way we approach criticism, and gosh, anybody tempted or prone to that? I am. If that is the way that we respond, then we're missing what Jesus is saying here because the fact of the matter is, man, there is a log oftentimes in my eye. Certainly there are specks. In my eye. And I need the family of God. To mercifully lovingly. Help me see. We need one another. And so we ought to be open. And inviting. And that's contingent upon the fact. That we understand this is mercy. And we're moving towards godliness. And towards uh, being put back together. In God's image. And we're doing it together as a family. I am not talking about being hypercritical. And everybody just shooting one another down. That's why I want to ask the next question. What should we mercifully judge? What should we mercifully judge? If we are to mercifully judge those inside the church, what exactly are we called to judge? I think this question is of the utmost importance because of our tendency, like Luke 6 is pointing out, to just see the issues in everybody else and not even notice it in ourselves. We get trigger happy and we want to bring up. We think everything is a hill to die on. Every issue needs to be addressed. And, and, and man, that's not the case at all. In fact, a lot of us ought to camp out on that proverb, man, just overlooking offense and overlooking and praying and watching God grow them without our intervention. We're not as needed as we think. But I want to know, is there some sort of criterion to help us determine whether an issue is actually worth addressing? Because churches go haywire over this. Denominations split over this. Friends, no more over this sort of stuff. Is there any sort of criterion that can help us out here? What do we actually address? What is the speck? That's, you know, we're not removing every mole or every cosmetic imperfection. We're removing important things that are blocking the way they see reality. What are those things? If we search the scriptures, I, I believe we find that we are to mercifully address in one another um, those things that fall into two general categories, doctrinal issues and moral issues. But now we got to ask the question, okay, which doctrinal issues and which moral issues 
are worth bringing up in the first place. So first, doctrinal issues. Regarding doctrine, when you study church history, which I did in seminary, um, one of the effects it has on you, I mean, it just humbles you to the core. Because what you realize is what those things that those interpretations in the Bible that you just thought were clear as day. And your opinion, everyone holds it. Your tribe got it right. And everybody knows it. I mean, when you study church history, you realize the whole swath of diversity of opinions on just a single verse throughout the centuries. Godly, faithful men who have disagreed over a number of biblical interpretive issues. And one of the uh, things that we should come out from this is to say, okay, well, wait a minute. If, if godly, faithful men disagree on so many of these different issues, where are those doctrinal things that we just lay hold of and they're non-negotiables? And where are those, th- th- those issues that we're willing to kind of agree to disagree? Because, man, if I, if I held up myself and my views as the standard that everyone else needs to hold to, well, guess what? I would have a church with one person in it. So we've got to learn where this cha- how charity enters into the equation. We have to learn to use terminology that's helpful, uh, for me at least, which doctrines are closed-handed and which are open-handed. Which do we wrap our, our hands around and we're willing to die for? And which do we say, yeah, we can have different opinions and I'm not going to, i got to take you out to lunch or we're going to have to talk about this. No, I do that over every... Every issue. But Christians do, you guys. Now, when we look to the New Testament for help on this, uh, while it remains tough still to discern where exactly the line is between closed-handed issues and open-handed issues, and I, I don't know where that is, one thing becomes clear. I think the center of the matter becomes clear. And that is what we see in the New Testament is that the apostles, if they're willing to die for anything at all, it's for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, this, Paul says, is of first importance that Jesus died and on the third day he was raised, right? First importance, that I will give my life for, that I will take the gloves off for. I'll die on that hill. Let me show you. An example with Paul here as he's talking to the church in Galatia. I want to know why does Paul write the letter to the Galatian church? What is he trying to address in their midst? Well, he comes right out of the gate saying it. He doesn't leave anything to confusion of interpretation. This is Galatians 1, 6 through 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. She says, man, we got to deal with, we got to deal with the doctrinal issue in your life called the gospel. Because there were guys from Jerusalem claiming to be Christians or whatever coming in saying, man, yeah, yeah, grace is good and faith is good. And Jesus did some good stuff. But you also need to hold, you know, hold to certain matters of the Old Testament law or you won't be justified. And Paul says, man, I got to get in the mat for that one. 
I'm watching them. I'm watching them veer off the Galatian church veering off on that. We got to address that speck. We got to get in there. And he uh, tells us how far he's willing to go in standing for this truth in the very next verse, man. Listen, how far is Paul willing to stand for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? No mixture of works. Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's the center. I don't know where the extremity of the line is somewhere out there of what's closed hand, but I know what's at the center. If even an angel from heaven comes and says, hey, man, you need a little works mixed in or you can't be saved. What Jesus did isn't fully sufficient for you. Man, you say you go back not to heaven, but to hell where you belong. He has a courage to call out angels if they disagree with him here. That's how serious this doctrinal matter is. And he goes on for the rest of the letter to just plea with the Galatian church. Come back to the gospel, addressing that issue in their lives. So the apostles clearly give doctrinal priority to the gospel. I I know I'm being simplistic here. I know there are other issues that are important, but I don't have time to deal with them. But at least we should gather from this. Is man, when we feel like, oh, I should bring this up with this person or, oh, you know, they, they believe that. Ooh, I'm not sure. Maybe I should. We need to pull back for a moment and ask. Is this a gospel issue? Where is the gospel in this? Or, or am I splitting hairs on all these secondary matters over here in the open hand? Getting, you know, divisive and, and enjoying the debates and whatever. In these matters that, that splitting over things that might not be at the center of God's heart. Might not be as clear as I think they are. Have you ever been to one of those churches that gets that sort of thing wrong. I've talked to some of you. I know you have. I was talking to another girl, uh, actually Taco Tuesday the other night. Her husband's from uh, Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania, which actually my wife and I visited Amish country, man. And she was telling me she's her husband, I guess, you know, I think I just said that her husband uh, grew up there. And she was telling me that uh, one of the hot button issues between the Amish and the Mennonites splitting with one another and breaking fellowship or whatever it is was like the, the, the corners that they preferred for their buggies. Like we want rounded corners. You want squared corners. Clearly you're the heathen. And we laugh, we laugh, but it's for real. We can get this distorted with one another and start arguing about things that the scripture doesn't say anything about. But we think suddenly we have chapter and verse for it. Let me show you how this might might appear in our fellowship. What's your view on spiritual gifts? Oh, that that's ridiculous. Are you even saved? You think you think that, you know, you have to speak in tongues or you think that, you know, uh, the gifts ceased. Do you even know Jesus at all? What's your take on the end times? Oh, yes, like I thought. You don't take the Bible literally. Man, you're just a heathen. (sighs) 
I'm going to have to break fellowship with you over that one. Or what? You don't believe in the, the five points of Calvinism? Do you even read your Bible? Look, I could take you to a thousand verses that prove it. I'll be fasting and praying for you, brother. But these are the sorts of things we can get into with one another. And now hear me say it. These are very important matters. I, mean, I have convictions about spiritual gifts, end times, you know, reformed theology, whatever it is. We know we ought to engage one another on these things. But we, we got to know where we're at. Are we in closed hand gospel? Man, we got to fight here or. Yeah, let's talk. Tell me why you believe what you believe. Yeah, I know. There's other godly, godly men that believe that, too. It's awesome. Here's what I think. Let's grow together. Wouldn't that be cool if we could do that? It's easier said than done. Jesus, help us. Now, secondly, I said uh, we need to address moral issues. But which moral issues? <laughs> we, we approach these things in similar ways um, to what I'm talking about with this whole doctrine thing. And I'll need to speed this part up. But we could look at, at, at moral issues in, 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 these, in this way. Uh, there are scriptures uh, that are going to deal with things uh, we would call black and white. Okay, clear as day, the scripture is going to speak about certain moral matters where, hey, listen, to walk over that line is 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 it's clear you are you are uh, choosing the devil over the world or I'm sorry, the devil over God. You're disobedient, you're in dangerous place, unrepentant sin. This is serious stuff like first Corinthians five, like sleeping with your dad's mom. That's pretty serious. I tried to think about how many commandments that, that dude broke by doing that. I mean, committing adultery, idolatry, uh, uh, disobeying his parents, uh, coveting uh, his neighbor's possessions, so to speak. I mean, it just, it's clear. It needs to be addressed because it's threatening his very soul and it's threatening the community. But there are a lot of things in Scripture, or a lot of things, I should say, regarding morality that aren't clear. Scripture doesn't address, or it gives a freedom regarding, and we would call those things perhaps gray areas. Gray areas. Now, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking of Romans 14, or you could say even 1 Corinthians, I think it's 9. Um, but Romans 14 in particular, verses like 1 through 4, is talking about these guys in the church who some felt, Convicted, like, oh, we should follow the Old Testament, uh, some of the Old Testament dietary laws. They didn't want to eat certain foods and meats and that sort of thing. And there were other guys who said, no, 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 we're free in Christ. You know, it's all good. Jesus saves us. He makes things clean. We're good. Well, here's what was happening. I'm not going to read the text, but essentially both were judging one another, okay? The, the guys who, who, who were not eating, we're looking at the dudes who were and saying, man, look at those gluttons over there. Look at them. They're not serious about the Christian faith. We're, we're abstaining from, you know, meat and all these things. We're suffering for Jesus here. They're doing nothing. And the guys over here that were eating the meat and not following those Old Testament laws were judging back. Oh, look at those guys over there. They're just legalists. Their conscience is all weak and small. We know the freedom we have in the gospel. And Paul is saying that. You want to know how Jesus approaches the situation? Both of you are welcomed 
in him. Who are you to judge another master's servant? He's able to make both of you stand. He welcomes both of you. So welcome one another. We like to take these gray issues in the church a lot of times and make them black and white. And kind of, again, act like we have chapter and verse and we feel justified for judging one another and looking down for the different things now. Not that they just believe, but the different things that they do. Let me give you a few examples about how this works out in the church. You see it probably. You probably have been affected by it and affected others by it. Are you watching how that person is parenting their child? Did you, did you just see what I saw? Man, if I don't step in and tell that mom what she needs to do, and that little child's going to be raised up to be a heathen, I know it. I better get in and say something. Oh, man, did you see what that family just spent their money on? They call themselves a Christian. They just bought a boat. And the treasure isn't in heaven. The treasure's right here on earth. It's parked in their driveway. That thing must have cost how much over many thousand dollars. I should probably talk to them. Now, I was out the other night, and you're not going to believe what I saw. I saw the pastor of our church, and he was having a glass of wine. Again, we laugh, but denominations split over this stuff. You understand this? This is serious stuff. I'll give you one more. Oh, you eat McDonald's. <laughs> well, that's not being a very good steward of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or to bring up a real issue. Oh, you tattoo yourself? How are you going to decorate the temple of God with heathen kind of things? See, So this is the sort of thing that happens. We think we have chapter and verse on all these gray moral issues and we're ready to get in the ring about it. And man, we got to step back and go, wait a minute, is this black and white? How clear is this? I mean, am I addressing a clear thing that's really affecting the way they see or do I just kind of love getting into the fray and taking the place of the superior person? And the teacher and the morally superior. Again, we should engage in discussions on these matters. I am not calling for just, hey, you know, what's true for you is true for you, true for me, true for me. Don't even talk about it. No, we want to engage. Man, I want to be a better parent. Help me. We might disagree, but help me. Man, I want to know how to be a better steward of my money or my body, or I want to know how to be a better disciple or whatever it is. Help me. But we might disagree on some of these matters, but man, I want to grow. I want to engage the discussion. See? And so we have to, we have to, we have to grow uh, wise in discerning. Not just who we are to judge, but then even what. What's worth discussing in a merciful, kind, loving, but firm way now finally and this will just be real quick why should we mercifully judge what's the motivation behind all of this what's the motivation what motivates us bringing up 
uh, certain uh, uh, closed hand more uh, doctrinal issues or certain black and white moral issues. Why do we do this? Why do we even enter into this sort of discussion with one another? Well, the first thing that we see, I think, is we do this for the good of our brother or our sister, the one we're talking to. Now, this is not always the case, right? And I've been alluding to it, but a lot of times it's self-serving. A lot of times our judgment is not merciful. It's not for the good of the other person. It's self-serving. We speak against people not because we're moved with love or compassion for them, but because we're kind of annoyed about this particular subject in their life. And we want it to get fixed. I'll tell you something. As a husband, one of the most important realizations I ever made was that, man, sometimes, Nick, it is not an issue of right and wrong. It's an issue of just different. And I'm trying to make things black and white, make things closed hand so that I can get her to be the way I want her to be. The way you handle chores in the house or spend money or whatever it is, I got to get in and address it. I'm the husband. I'm the leader. I almost destroyed my marriage because I couldn't discern this. This is the sort of thing that can not only destroy marriage, but destroy church. And so, man, the first thing we got to understand is we do this because we love the other person. And that is the whole burden, again, of what Jesus is saying back in Luke 6. He comes out of the whole discussion and gives us what should be motivating us there in verse 42. So that you can, you can see the speck and remove it. In other words, so that you can help that person who was being blinded or struggling. The whole goal in Jesus' discussion with us is to make us more skilled, more wise, more careful, more able to help one another. See, even in the most severest cases, you guys, this is the motivation. Even in cases like 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is saying, don't even eat with such a brother if he's not willing to repent of that sort of sin. Even in that sort of situation where our judgment gets severe, it is still merciful and it is still in love for them. You want to know, Paul, he gives the motivation that he has there in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Why don't eat with such a one? Why excommunicate such a one? This seems harsh. Well, Paul says, verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, we address this sin and this brother, not so we can kind of come over top and look down, but so that he'll see, he'll awaken to the speck that's in his eye, to the sin, perhaps the beam that's in his eye, and he will be saved in the end. And if we don't step into the fray for him, he'll just go on thinking it's fine, and his soul will harden to the things of God. First, why do we do it? For the good of of our brother or sister. Secondly and finally, why do we do it? We do it for the glory of God. We mercifully judge for the glory of God. God's reputation is on the line here in his church. Do you understand that? His reputation in the world is on the line here in the church. Jesus says something back up in Luke 6 verse 40. He says, a disciple when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Well, what does that mean? But that if I want to know what the teacher is like, 
I should be able to look at what the disciple is like. Because the disciple is like his teacher. Therefore, when the world wants to know, what is Jesus all about? What's Christianity all about? They ought to be able to look into the church and say, man, look at his disciples. That must be what he's all about. I'm looking in at, at the face of Christ in that community. And so that's why, you guys, we go to bat for the doctrine of the gospel. If we start doing the whole legalistic thing, what do we tell the nations? Oh, Christianity is for the clean. It's for the people that get themselves all right and dressed up for church and don't swear and all this, and then they're good. It's like, no, man. No, man. Jesus died for sinners, and we bring nothing to the equation. We just embrace him. And we hold that doctrine so that the nations know it. Well, what does it say to the nations if we just let serious and ungodly stuff exist in our midst? Well, says God, you know, isn't that serious? He's not that holy. Yeah, sure, grace will get you into heaven, but it's not going to change anything about you. I know Christians, and there's the worst lot of all. So we come in and we say, no. Listen to me, if you want to take on yourself the name of Christ, then we want to be growing together in his image. Let's help each other do that. Let me help you with that. This is serious. Let me take you to the chapter and verse. I have one. It's black and white, I think. And let's, let's come back to the Lord and start looking more like him in our lives. So that's why, that's why we're concerned with verse 42 kind of judgment. Judgment that's merciful. Judgment that centers on the right people regarding the right issues guided by the right motivations. God's glory is on the line. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us this time together. I pray that it will be helpful when we enter the field. I pray that you would guide us in those moments when the undertow is pulling and verse 37 kind of judgment seems more appropriate, more comfortable, more enjoyable. Help us to hold our tongue. Help us to judge ourselves. Help us to, to, to assess the situation clearly and move only as your spirit guides on the right things for the right reasons. Help us to be like you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that before we ever learn how to mercifully judge other people, Jesus, you have mercifully judged us. You extend your mercy and your willingness to forgive and save, even as you call us out of darkness and into light. It's in your new prayer. Amen.